The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day, they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. The word of God, the people of God. Thank you, Pastor. So we've been considering in the course of the last month or so, some of these deeply local ways that God is working and calling us to join in with that work where we already are. And we'll continue today our series. It's called Home Economics, Neighboring in the Good News, after that word oikos, which means home. <clears throat> and where we come on this text that Gary just read so well, and it might be really familiar to you, this Acts 2.42. There's churches named after this verse even. This is kind of like if there ever was, this was like the way to make church great again, right? Acts 2.42 is the reference point. It's the charter. This is like the time and place that Marty McFly would like enter into the DeLorean and go back to the future if we really want to do church right. Everyone always talks about uh, you know, normally someone that's not part of a church would say, yeah, I'd really love to be a part of a church if it was like the early church, right? This is that. This is that text. This is the community that is experiencing ripples of the Holy Spirit's generous outpouring at Pentecost. The descriptors we get are that they're devoted, awe-inspired, united, generous, they're growing, there's nothing in here about how, your neighbor, about how their neighbors were suspicious of them, like assume that they were all the opposite of those things, you know, like hypocritical and mechanical and fractious and greedy and dying away. This is the heyday. The spirit is moving. But before we get kind of too caught up in this nostalgia, let's remember that we're not only... Uh, a people that worships the God who was or the God who will be, but we're the God, uh, we worship the God who says, I am, right? That, that, that means even now the spirit is still moving. If anything, this, the story of this movement from Pentecost is, even now, is, is kind of a tale of two tables. And here's what I mean by this. So for hundreds of years, maybe even thousands, before the printing press and, and, and before Bible translation and all that, uh, a lot of the ways Christians taught was through pictures. Uh, there's a, a picture of this really famous one. These pictures are called icons. You don't paint icons, you, you write and you read icons, right? And only a very special person trained in doing these in a mode of worship actually even writes an icon. You could, you could write a picture that looked like an icon, but you need to be an icon writer, blessed and commissioned by the church. And these pictures are rich, interactive pictures of who God is and how we're invited to pray and share in God's life. Like, how can we have our perceptions changed through these pictures? How can we be transformed by the renewing of our minds? 
uh, to see like through God's eyes. An icon is something you see through, not just look at. And then to tap into God's thoughts and ways, like Isaiah 55 says that God has thoughts and ways that are way above and beyond ours, and we start to kind of tap into them by reading these texts. So another cool thing they do is they cause us to slow down and notice really subtle things that make drastic statements. So this icon is called the Trinity. It's by someone named Rublev. It's very famous. You can do a simple Google search and find it. And it's kind of sad that most of us will only ever see this on a screen. Uh, try to find the most high resolution one you can find. But on one level, uh, so we're going to read this a little bit. On one level, it's simply an illustration, like, like in some of your Bibles that have pictures, right? Of the three visitors of Abraham at Mamre. This is a story from Genesis 18. So even on this level, we're already kind of brought, like fast forward hauntingly into the New Testament. Because it's this story that the book of Hebrews reminds us, Christians, to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters and don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. This is like the, a trapdoor story in the Bible, right? So be careful. They might be angels. And we don't just learn from Abraham's example, or later there's a lot of New Testament examples here, like Mary and Joseph, and maybe even the guy that Jesus is talking about, the rich guy that spurns the poor guy Lazarus, where you're entertaining angels or you're encountering the divine and you don't even know it. We don't just learn from these examples, but we, we get this expectation formed in us that God might show up. That God might actually show up in the least, the lost, the last, the littlest, the closest to death. The person knocking on your door, your neighbor. So we look a little closer at this, and we see kind of foregrounded in this scene, as my friend Reynolds, who was here last week, referred to, redemption by reclining is what's happening here. And the, this is the very life of the triune God. Three persons... One, two, three. That's easy to see. You don't need an art history major uh, to understand these. That's kind of the point of all of this. Three persons, one table, one face. They all kind of have the same family resemblance here. And if you zoom in even closer, and the screen's maybe not good for it, you can look this up on your own time. Zoom in even closer, and you see that they also share the same clothing. They're all wearing blue, this color from heaven. And then we work left to right, and we see the figure on the left wearing this like translucent gold cloak, this hidden creator wearing translucent gold, maybe the same like pearlescent gold that the streets of the New Jerusalem are paved with, this ultimate neighborhoods, streets and walls and gates, and I like to even think like mailboxes are covered with this like pearlescent see-through gold because it's so pure you can see through it. And then the good father is extending his hand, a hand of blessing towards the central character, the beloved son in whom he's well pleased, who wears this purple garment on top of the blue. This is a, a garment of, of royal priesthood. He can't look away from the father's gaze, even as he gestures towards the cup of his obedience even unto death, a death on the cross. 
And finally, the spirit is seated on the right. And I wish the color on our monitor was better because the, the spirit shares the exact same angle of the sun. Look, look at their heads, how they're tilted. The exact same angle towards the father. But the spirit is wearing the vibrant green of the new creation as the Lord and giver of life. Her gaze is towards the open spot at the table. Even as each of these characters have separate sets of wings, the wings kind of touch and overlap. Even as each is equipped with their own walking stick for the journey, uh, there's an open seat at the table for the feast. If an icon writer used highlighters, which they don't, to emphasize a point, like this is how when Paul writes a letter, he says, in, in Galatians says, I'm writing this in really big letters with my own handwriting, right? This is what the icon writer is doing with this empty spot at the table. Because it doesn't make any sense if, if you're an artist to draw this this way. The spot at the table should be like a, a scene on a highway where uh, you have this wide mouth that you're drawn into and as you look towards the horizon, it kind of closes and recedes into a vanishing point. But not this table. this table. This table instead is quite the opposite. This table comes to us. God's life approaches us. This is what Ephesians 2 is saying. For grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, but it's a gift of God. It's not the result of works, so that no one can be proud or boast. This table opens up and opens out God's own self. God's very life of what that feast is on the table, Christ's body and blood. It, it opens it into like, it's called reverse perspective. God doesn't just hold out a hand to bless us from afar. The invitation and the blessing are the same. It says, come on in, I'm coming to you. This is the good father running to the lost son. Henry Nouwen talks about this icon. He says, after I gazed for a very long time at Rublev's Trinity, these words spoke to me with new power. Praying at all times has come to mean dwelling in the house of God all the days of our lives. Surviving all that is going to happen now tells me I'm no longer in need to be a victim of fear, hatred, and violence that rule this world. There's comfort in this house. There's safety. There's higher ground, as we sang earlier. And finally, we bounce our eyes uh, to where um, to the background where we find our household, which is both the household of God and a common household with a real table where you spend most of your life. These, these, these two things are the same. We, we, see, we see that household over, over, the, over God's shoulder. Um, we look at the sun and we see the tree over his shoulder, which is this, the tree of Eden, but it's also the oak of Mamre that provides shade for someone. It's also the tree on Calvary, but it also might as well be the tree that straddles two rivers in the New Jerusalem. We look over the spirit's shoulder and we see the city on a hill, the New Jerusalem, and it, it's all both of these things. It's this, this grand biblical real tables, real places, real homes. These are all the same. And again, it features this idyllic church scene in Acts 2. And there's a simple description in verse 46 that I, I, I just jumped out at me this time. It says, every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. We probably read right over that because of all the cool things that are happening on both sides of it. 
all the redistribution and signs and wonders and awestruck stuff and uh, people being added by the day. It says they, they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. This might seem like a throw, throwaway line, but I think it's something bigger and far more interesting. It's a description of what a robust community life oriented towards God, filled with the Spirit, and following the resurrection of the Son looks like. It shows us the very same things that that icon show us. That communion and a common meal are the same. The temple and the household are both sites of experiencing and extending the surprising presence of God in Christ by the Spirit. The message riffs off of Psalm 23 and says, Your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life, and I'm back in the home of the house of God for the rest of my life. Back in the home of God for the rest of my life. So let me show you in another way. Uh, about all this. If the original intention of creation, like God said all these things, said let it be, let it be, and it was, and it was, and it was good, it was good, it was very good, right? The, the original intent of creation was that Adam and Eve might walk with God and, and God with them. The original intent of creation is that creation, all of creation, but especially humanity, which images God, male and female, made in God's image, would be with God and God would be with them. That means that the point that all of creation would be God's temple, the place where God dwells. Unfortunately, when sin and death come into the picture, the world kind of bottles up, among other things. The story of scripture is kind of the story of creation groaning with inaudible sighs by the Spirit towards redemption in Christ who holds all these things together that have been broken apart. So creation is groaning for re-entry into this feast. So by God's grace, God's people have always kind of been given access to God in a really kind of specific and particularly intense way through a temple, but also uh, some other sort of sanctuary or God's fire by night and smoke by day that God is going to show God's people, I'm going to be with you. I'm always going to be with you. And I'm going to do that, like, in a peculiar, particular way. And then, upon the expectation, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and the outpouring of the Spirit, that temple-bound reality burst outward into ordinary, everyday spaces of our lives. When Jesus pointed to himself and said, this temple will be torn down and rebuilt in three days, it seems like he was considering a really massive renovation project like towards like a really open concept with like dividing walls of hostility torn down, right? And instead of those walls, they, they take up all the scraps from those walls and they build a table of hospitality from that dividing wall of hostility. That when Jesus serves a feast to those who'd follow him, he says, this is my body and this is my blood broken and poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, be fed by me. Be with me and be fed by me. It's so strange to me, then, that a lot of Christians have an easier time expecting to meet God, like, in the scriptures or in a mountain landscape or in, like, the strum of a guitar than around a table where, where Christ has shown himself over and over and has presided, has said, I am present at this table for you. 
It, it's, it's the table that Jesus opens the eyes of his disciples after he's resurrected, and it says, that, didn't our hearts burn within us when we met Jesus at this table and were fed by him? So you can see now by that statement about these early followers of the way, they weren't yet known as Christians, their meeting in the temple and in homes, oikon, is revolutionary. They still met with God in the temple in the very specific way that they were used to. But this meeting opened them out to God's presence in all of creation. But now, as is always the intent, also comes the possibility that God's worship and presence will move out into common, ordinary spaces and places of their lives together. So they'd always come to the temple to be opened out to God's presence in creation. Now they're coming to the temple and they're opened out to God's life with them in their homes, around their tables, around their neighbors' tables. This pattern continues in Paul's ministry. He says, you know that I haven't hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly from house to house. Taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to read a really wild story, read the beginning of that chapter in Acts 20. There's this guy who's fallen asleep during a sermon and he falls out of a window and then Paul resuscitates him back to life. So if it's going bad for you right now, like it, it's not going as bad as Eutychus, right? So, but, but this, the, this little aside from Paul says, I taught from you publicly, that would be in the temple. I taught from you from house to house. I went in all these little private spaces um, where I didn't have a microphone or a loudspeaker attached to me. And it says, for the good of the Jews, would have been particularly responsive to his preaching in the temple and for the Greeks whom he could find around tables and homes in these ordinary places where maybe they even thought they were safe from encountering God and now they're encountering the living God. You can see that this expansive life of God starts to bear missionary fruit. These, there are many people in your life Many of our neighbors who will not step inside this building. We knew that when we planted Oak Church. When we would meet new people and knock on doors to invite people to party, they'd be like, oh, you're in that building. I've never been in that building. That building's been there for 112 years, and I've never been in there. We don't expect them to come in here. We go to them. We will encounter, we're given license and given the expectation to encounter the life of God in our homes and in their homes, places and spaces where we will encounter them. It seems that these early Christians have a really balanced diet with this. They're doing this every day. They're, they're wearing a path back and forth between the temple and their homes. They're neither growing too fat from just being fed in the temple, you know, being spiritually nourished, um, only feasting on worship, but they're also not faint from just living this exercising, expending life on mission outside of the walls. But rather, it's, maybe they're, they're kind of made fit. They're nourished, they're equipped for worship and mission together. I think that nourishment comes through kind of four legs on this table that, that is part of our passage. Like you, most tables have four legs, right? Is that, we have a few woodworkers in here. You can make other tables, but and this actually does not have four legs, coincidentally. <laughs> but if you have a table with four legs and, and you kick out a leg, it's not going to go very well for very long for you. 
So these four things need to exist and in, in our passage. It says they met together under the apostles' teaching. And this is, this is spiritual food for them. This is, this is how they're nourished. This is where they hear God's word together. Um, they, this, is, this is where they're doing the work, right? Uh, a lot of us are, are kind of in a season where we're, where we're lear- learning and relearning our faith. We're, we're learning and relearning in light of uh, things that we might never have interacted with our faith before, like race or, or gender and all these things. And, and most of what you have to do there is you have to do the work. You, you, have, to, you have to read. You have to interact. You have to, to do all this thing before, you, before you're out, before you're, before you're uh, uh, preaching, before you're teaching. You just have to do the work, and you have to sit under the apostles' teaching, the ones who have gone there and done that. This is the soul nourishment. The second leg is says that they met with the apostles' teaching, but also in community. And this is this is a huge word. This is koinonia. The, the community is just such a. It's an accurate translation, but it is a small translation. This is participation. This is this is triune stuff that we're tapping into, and this is this is a highly relational fellowship that we're talking about here. So they've been fed spiritual food and had a relational fellowship. And then the third leg on this table are these shared meals. It says they broke bread in, in, in the original language. This is relational food. So often people show up at church and you, get, you expect to be fed spiritually, but you go away actually hungry. We, we hope that never happens here at Oak Church, right? Um, it, we expect that this relational food will actually be part of the spiritual food and they'll interact with each other. Finally, the, the fourth leg are these prayers that they engage with together. This, this is spiritual fellowship. This is where you join your hearts and join your voices with others, that the Spirit does this work of pooling out our inaudible prayers and, and rearranges them and puts words to them so that we can open our hearts and lives to each other and to God. This is, so we have our spiritual food, our relational fellowship, our relational food, and our spiritual fellowship together. Any of these uh, might be lacking, and one or several of these might be really intimidating to you. What do you do if, if you're like, oh, I'm good with a three-legged table here, but it really freaks me out to sit across the table from someone that I don't know? Don't laugh at that. That is something I've seen many times over, that, that especially people who are used to church, love to show up and hear a good sermon or a decent sermon or just an okay sermon or a not heretical sermon, right? And, but when you ask them to, to like crack out the silverware and feed someone, that's really scary because that's someplace that you, you're not comfortable with. You don't know, you know? Um, that I, I was listening on the way into school on a first and second grade carpool the other day, we listened to this podcast called Wow in the World. It's a science podcast. It's incredible. And they were talking about this, this laboratory at Purdue University, and it's called a SPIT laboratory, right? And the scientists, right? They, they made an acronym, Saliva, Perception, Ingestion, and Tongues, right? SPIT. And this whole thing talked about how our taste can change. That's why, by and large, kids don't really like bitter foods like greens and uh, uh, coffee and stuff, but this experiment, they, they took chocolate milk uh, that was unsweetened and slowly but surely gave, gave it to people over the course of a week and gradually, uh, gradually well, it didn't, didn't actually change any of the sweetness, but people 
um, recorded that they felt it was sweeter because their taste buds, their saliva, their actual constitution started to change with exposure. I, I, I think that's a little bit how we, we tune our taste to these four legs is, is uh, just exposure, just by doing it over and over again. Um, just doing it so that those, you know, the hundred and one time, those prayers start to come out of us, and we might even be surprised when we pipe in during the prayers of the people. Or that you don't even realize that you've moved from being a guest at the table to being a host. And it, and it didn't even occur to you that that happened. Or that the apostles teaching, maybe, maybe you grew up and you've never been around church, and it's so strange to you to have a book open to you and to try to pay attention to what it's saying and change your life around it. Like, that's so strange. But then after you're immersed in it, you see that this word is living and will cut you, but will also heal you. It, it, we do this through exposures, and I think the massive, this is, you can start to see the massive results to this sort of life around two tables, the temple table and, and the households. These people in our story were, were re-enchanted. This is no small feat or expectation for our time when we've become so hard to impress, like so unexpected that anything is going to break in outside of us and change anything, including us, or that we're deeply distracted by really immediate things that we think we can control. That's why I think our phones are so obsessive. It's not just because of massive amounts of power and information. It's because uh, we can control that world, right? It's way easier than what might happen in front of us. But this two-table life is tuned in. It's tuned in to signs and wonders performed, not just in some weird and out there way, but it's a th in and through the apostles, like in and through each other. They saw each other doing signs and wonders. That is wild. That is incredible in, in terms of unbelievable, right, un unless you see it. This happens when our lives start to look more like God's. Our, our tables rarely have an extra chair and open space for this sort of discovery surprise to happen uh, when God shows up. So here's a small tip. Some of us walk around so bored. This is not the case with, with my family because we have small kids and probably many families with small kids. But if you're bored, I, I have a challenge for you. Start to invite one person over to your house a week. Like make just one extra portion of what you would normally make. And if, if you're only cooking for one or two, this actually might be pretty easy to do. And then just spend that whole meal asking questions. Don't tell them about you, just ask questions about them. And I swear that this is such an odd practice, they might not come back, but, but you'll be shocked at what happens, right? Like. I will disclaim that not every one of these encounters will immediately and automatically change your life, but guess what? If you go from the type of person who never shares meals with anyone that you don't know very well to someone who's had 52 people in your house in a year, you became a different person in the course of that year just by doing that. It's wild stuff, radical, explosive stuff. And in addition to being enchanted, these these early Christians were united and generous. Since they sold things to help the poor among them. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and showed how good God is to everyone. And people got saved daily and added to their numbers. This might be the first Christian statement on evangelism and social justice that's ever happened, right? I know 
This came many, many, many years, generations, thousands of years before Karl Marx or Walter Rauschenbusch or John MacArthur ever showed up. They were making statements on evangelism and social justice. This life around two tables knows no way to separate praising God from seeking equity. This is like an integrated life where worship and evangelism find their main expression in community, organizing, and commensality. It's where these arms of social justice feed back into the community which praises God. You see how interactive that is? This is a little bit of our vision for our weekly potluck meal here at Oak Church. When we started Oak Church, we kind of intuited, and then we started to learn. You always kind of start with an idea, and then you are open for God to change your plans. For a more specific way uh, to, to, to kind of feed and be fed together. We were starting to see how necessary it was and how beautiful it could be to get like young families, homeless people, graduate students, um, folks who are single, widows, married people, even religious people, like in the same place at the same time breaking bread across from each other, around the table on a weekly basis. For as outstanding as Durham's brunch scene is, I don't know many tables in Durham that are more beautiful or have more potential than our tables. That's not bragging, that's, that's description, right? You're invited to be a part of that. That's, that's also a, an advertisement. This is also a little bit of the vision for our mustard seed groups that we talked about earlier. These little outcroppings of the kingdom of God that meet outside of the walls of our church building in homes and public spaces. That these groups might be places where you can be filled with awe and share food and take care of each other and praise God and demonstrate God's goodness to everyone. Maybe even we'll, people will get saved and we'll be baptizing people out of our groups. Isn't that great? Of course we want you all to grow deeply in community with one another. But we also want these groups to kind of have permeable membranes that people can come into. Because, again, these are, these are spaces that, that, that you can welcome strangers and family and friends and neighbors into. So, to close, though, <clears throat> how many folks in here have a Fitbit? A Fitbit? All right. That's not a lot. I don't have one. I pray that as we kind of hit our fourth year of ministry and, and gathering church as you go out of here and are, are sent into uh, life and mission and worship and ministry, that we'll continue to be empowered, informed, and inspired just by like 49 steps, give or take a couple, right? These 49 steps is the space that it takes to get from this table out the back, down the stairs, to the potluck tables. I have pretty big strides, so it might be a little more, might be a little less. This 49 steps from temple to oikos, these two tables, and of course these tables are just kind of stand-ins for all of the places of public and corporate worship and encounter with God and the rest of our lives live before the face of God. All the, all the tables that we'll have this week at work or at school. And, you know, to quote Annie Dillard, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives, right? I think also how we walk these small number of steps and how we have life around the table is, is how we live as neighbors of the good news for our whole lives, right? So I, I send you with that 
that expectation and that challenge. Will you guys pray with me? Father, thanks for meeting us at the table. Of all the symbols, uh, all the um, uh, ways that we might expect to meet you at a pulpit or um, uh, at, at some sort of uh, fortress or stronghold, uh, you chose a table, and you chose a table with an empty spot at it, waiting for us, waiting for us to be part of your life because of the work of your son and the invitation of your spirit. Join us in that life. Give us expectations at all the, the places we can encounter you, um, the places uh, that you've been long at work and, and are just opening our eyes up to now. Uh, we thank you uh, for your life at the table. Amen.